Welcome to the Peer Review Podcast. This is episode number eight, and your host is Gabby Pinjet. She's one of Australia's leading scientists. She's won an Order of Australia medal and has been recognised as New South Wales Woman of the Year, which she says just happened to her. Although after speaking with her today, I get the sense very quickly that there's a reason for these accolades. I'm speaking today with Professor Minotti Apte. I am a professor of medicine and director of the Pancreatic Research Group at the University of New South Wales. We are based at the Ingham Institute for Applied Medical Research close to Liverpool Hospital. Could you tell us a bit about your research, especially research into stellate cells and their role in pancreatic cancer? So um, our research is mainly to do with two major diseases of the pancreas. Uh, One is pancreatitis, which is inflammation of the gland, and the other being pancreatic cancer. Both of these, especially chronic pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer, are very difficult to treat diseases. And the pathogenesis of these diseases um, has still to be elucidated, although we understand some mechanisms, we don't understand others very well. One of the things that actually struck me when I was beginning my PhD and at the time was working on alcoholic chronic pancreatitis was the amount of fibrosis or scar tissue that you see in patients with advanced conditions. And at the time there was uh, no work at all being done in that area to work out why we were getting so much scarring and whether there was any influence of that scarring on the progression of the disease. So I started out looking at the scar tissue and trying to work out what cells make that uh, fibrosis and taking cues from what had happened in the liver, we decided to look for a cell, a cell type called stellate cells, which were found in the liver, um, to see whether the same type of cells might be also in the pancreas that caused the fibrosis. and. That's how we got into the stellate cell field. At the time that I was working on it, there was only one Japanese paper that had come out describing star-shaped cells in situ in the pancreas by staining, but then nothing was done about it for, for at least 16 years until when we started looking for ways to isolate the cells. And working with the pancreas is always a challenge because it's a a gland that's full of digestive enzymes. So when you isolate, we take the gland out of a, of a say, a random mouse model, it immediately almost starts digesting itself. So to, it's always a, it's always much difficult to work with pancreas than liver. So anyway, we, I was able to develop a method to isolate and culture pancreatic stellate cells, and the isolation was based on a a peculiar property that the stellate cells have, which is the ability to store vitamin A as lipid droplets. And that gives the cells a certain density. So you can use density gradient centrifugation to get the cells off at a certain density, separate them from the rest of the cells in the pancreas after the uh, tissue is homogenized. And that way we were able to, you know, be able to separate those cells out and then get them and then actually work on a lot of uh, optimizing techniques to get the best cultures of stellate cells. So that's how we fell into the stellate cell field. And in general, then moved on to trying to look at the role of stellate cells in pancreatic cancer, because the same thing applied for pancreatic cancer, very, very difficult to treat. Um, Nobody knowing what that 
scar tissue that abundant um, desmoplasia uh, was doing in pancreatic cancer and so we were the ones to then show that it was the stellate cells that made the, the collagenous stroma in pancreatic cancer and then also to show that they were not just there making scar tissue but they were actually talking actively to uh, to the cancer cells as well as other cells in the stroma to cause disease progression. So that's sort of the, the gist of, <laughs> of many, many years of work. Do you think that that's why we've mostly ignored the pancreas as a, an organ because of its difficulty in isolating cells? And, and yeah. yeah, I think there's, a, there's many different reasons. The pancreas has always been um, a mystery organ is supposed to be a, 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 an enigma wrapped in a mystery or a mystery wrapped in an enigma, whatever way you want to couch it. But it's always been one of those organs that have been mis, uh, misunderstood right from the beginning. So way back uh, many, many thousands of years ago, Herophilus was a Greek anatomist who actually um, did even, I mean, at least looked at the pancreas and saw this fleshy organ. and. At the time, they thought it was just a cushion for the rest of the organs in the abdomen. But so that's how it was. It was. It, it took a long time to figure out what it actually did. Many of our listeners, being in the area of science, we understand that we often get unexpected results. Can you tell us a story about a time that you had any unexpected results, and whether this was necessarily a bad thing, and how did you deal with the outcome? Yeah, I, I can tell you one, which is. I mean, there's a few. There's been a few instances throughout the years, but the one that I always a story that I think is very engaging is so when I first developed that method to isolate the stellate cells, we, you know, obviously excited and absolutely enthralled that we were able to get these cells out and could actually see them and identify them with all these markers, and it, so we published. We published the results, and uh, that was another exciting thing. It was the first time in the world anybody done that kind of work, and all of that. And we got a fair bit of, uh, you know, kudos for that and recognition. And few months, uh, maybe about eight months down the track, um, obviously still wanting to do a lot of work because in the, initially we were just identifying and and characterizing the cells, but we didn't really know what they did. So to study their function, we had to do many more studies. Obviously, we needed to get more cells. And uh, the initial work was all done with rat pancreatic stellates. So I developed the method and optimized it on rat pancreas. At around about eight months or so after we published the work, I just couldn't get the technique to work. Nothing was working. We couldn't get stellate cells for the love of God. I couldn't get cells out. I got. I was so stressed because I thought, oh my God, I've had, you know, I've gone and published something that was a fluke, and how am I going to get out of this? And it was a really stressful couple of weeks because I was trying it every day, trying everything I could think of to to make the technique work again for me. And as and then we started. I started thinking, well, was there something different about these rats that I'm bringing in? Because you know, as you know, we, we get our rats from certain sources, and they're all um, because they're inbred. There are certain strain of animals. Um, as it turned out, we we found out that the rats that I had ordered for this latest um, experimental sort of setup was from a different supplier, and they were breeding their rats because our rats didn't have to be PC2 rats, they were just, you know, ordinary 
perhaps in PC1 conditions. And this, this supplier was housing all its animals in PC2 conditions, so in sort of aseptic, sterile conditions. And for that, they were irradiating their food. And the f irradiating the food meant that the vitamin A was destroyed. And so because these cells, because the isolation was completely dependent on vitamin A storage of the cells, there was no vitamin A stored. And so the cells were not floating at that density that they were supposed to float at. And so actually, the, and it only came, the realization came step by step. So we first figured out that it was a different supply. Then we figured out what were they eating. Then what I started doing was getting the rats into our animal house uh, almost three to four weeks in advance, feeding them a normal diet, so non-irradiated, and then getting the vitamin A back into them, and then it started working again. Mm. Thank God, it was such a nightmare. So that was, you know, that uh, I mean, the the I guess the lesson learned from that is that you have to persist and have faith in what you've developed as being valid and if it's not working with them there has to be some scientific explanation for it <laughs> so yeah that's what happened to me the peer review podcast is supported by pocd scientific for all your lab needs you can visit them at their website www.pocd.com.au What's a piece of advice you wish someone had given you when you were undertaking your PhD or as a young scientist? Or a piece of advice someone gave you that you'd like to pass on for other researchers finding their feet? I guess, so my background is medicine. So I, I did, a, did my uh, MBBS from a university in India and migrated to Australia pretty soon after I finished my internship. So you know, I only worked in the clinical realm for a little bit. I had no notion of research at the time, absolutely none, because in during my graduate undergrad studies in India, there was little emphasis on research. So uh, when I started, I, I started to, by doing a master's of medical science by research and also something that I fell, literally sort of fell into, if you like. But at the time, um, if if I had had the, maybe I'd, if I'd had the advice that everything you do is research, really. Whether you're, you know, whether you're doing clinical work, whether you're doing any other job, it's actually, the basis of it is research in one way or another. Because you're always trying to do things better, which means you have to find out what's gone on before and what are the gaps in knowledge, and then you want to fill those gaps. And that's the basis of research in general. If I'd known that, it would have been less daunting, I think, to start with, because I really was very, uh, not uncomfortable, fairly daunted, actually, by the prospect of being of having to show up to work and then not knowing exactly what was to be done. Because in research, you know, you don't, you do, you have your experiments backed up, but a lot of the time it's whether you're asking the right question. Whereas in clinical work, and I say that to all my clinical friends, is that it's really easy. You, you rock up, you know you have a list of patients to look at, you know what you have to do with them, and you go home. But with research, you have to actually get to work and find out what you're going to do in the first place, and then try and work out how you're going to do it, and then go home thinking about you know what went wrong. So um, that's one, yeah, it's just something that 
maybe I never had during my undergrad years that if I had been told it would be less daunting but uh, uh, the advice that I would give anybody who and, and I have mentored many young people who come to the country many migrants but also other young people who are not quite sure where to go next in their careers and the one advice I give them is that you have to have passion for what you want to do and you need to so you need to look around a lot of the times I, I, I get um, people who just finished their bachelor of science or whatever and, not, and honors and they're not sure whether they want to do a PhD or not and I always say to them Perhaps it's best if you go and work for a couple of years, find out what really interests you, and then come back and uh, do a PhD. That way you'll be passionate about it, because during a PhD is a long haul, as everyone knows, and it's never easy. It's never. I, I, I'd really challenge anybody who would say it was plain sailing. It never is easy, and it requires so much persistence and perseverance and just the courage to keep going that if you're not if you don't really like what you do you probably not be successful so just leading on from that comment about passion i've heard that you play an active role in your local indian community you also dance and choreograph traditional north indian kathak dance which i've seen is really difficult do you find that this intricate form of dance is almost a form of mindful meditation and do you think that it's played a role in helping you stay motivated and focused? Mm, absolutely, yeah. A, a few uh, years ago we had to write a note to our younger selves for the university and uh, one of the things that I did say was that the fact that you have a, a hobby or a passion for dance is really great because it's, it's, it's something that, you know, takes you away from the day-to-day -day stresses of work but by this and also it's something you absolutely love to do so I, I actually only started dancing after I came to Australia this the Kathak dance but uh, I think I'm good at it and I just love it and it basically takes you away from that one or two hours of dance practice in a week really does completely invigorate you for the rest of the week because it's different you you forget everything else you forget all your stresses and you're in the moment and yeah you could call it mindful meditation because you really are completely just thinking of that and nothing else um, and that that helps in other other areas as well and, and just being connected to the community through that I thought was I, I feel this this great because uh, again as I mentioned earlier all the new migrants that come um, they usually come to know me through this kind of activity and then then they feel you know more comfortable talking to me about it about their other careers and all of that so uh, I am blessed to be able to spend some time doing I'm blessed to have had a great teacher um, my guru in dancing and yeah. I, I must say I really do enjoy it. Mind you, if I had started much earlier, like when I was in primary school or something, I might have been a bit better at it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Now I only mainly do it, you know, practice it for ex for my own exercise and enjoyment and then get involved with teaching when I can. I guess you can't be the best at everything in every field, right? <laughs> we are sort of those kind of people who want to excel at everything <laughs> so you get a little bit yeah, a little bit too tied up with being the best but no I, I, I agree we can't be the best at everything 
try and be the best one we can. (laughs) (laughs) You've encountered so much success in your research, but with that, so much rejection. And I've heard you mention in the past criticism, particularly when publishing novel ideas about stellate cells. We always hear how important it is to back yourself, but in the face of such rejection, how do you stay confident in your own research? So the story I mentioned before was one thing, although it wasn't rejection, it was just something happened in the lab, but actually the story of when we first published this paper in 98 is also quite interesting in itself. So we sent it off to gastroenterology, which is the top journal, the premier journal in the field of gastroenterology. and. The paper came back after a long time, actually, in those days were paper-based stuff, you know, you sent it off and you waited for weeks until you got a response. So it came back with reviewers' um, comments that had been redacted, so there were black marks across, the editor had black marks across the comments in areas. It was almost as though whatever the reviewer had said might have been too rude or something. And so we we weren't we were thinking you know this is this is quite something it never happened to us before but it was rejected very disappointing because we thought this was you know such a new thing um, but what I what we decided with my supervisor's advice was just turn it around quickly and send it to the next the second draft journal and they took it later on we found that at the same time as our paper hit gastroenterology's desk, they, they must have been considering another paper from Germany. And whatever happened, they, you know, our paper got sent back with all this, these sort of redacted comments. And then what we were, we published in April 98, a month or two later, this, that paper from Germany got published in gastroenterology. But because we were the first, we got all the credit you know, rather than them. It would, and they were using a slightly different technique, but we had no idea that they were working on the same thing. So they also did a pancreatic cell sort of isolation procedure, but a slightly different one. And it was because we were first, I mean, we got that, you know, because we turned it around, sent it to another journal. I think that sort of put us on the map more than the other group. Mind you, later on, we became the greatest of friends with that because we, you know, used to meet up at conferences and things like that. The other rejection was during the um, concept we had about stellate cells moving from the primary tumor to metastatic sites. And again, the same sort of, whenever you challenge a paradigm, at the time the paradigm was that only cancer cells can move from the cancer to distant sites. Nobody was, you know, nobody wanted to uh, actually accept that we had these data that were very convincing. So that took a long time to, you know, to we we ended up with the same journal, but we had to convince them. Um, but we kept at it. I think that's the main thing. What you do, if you're if you're confident of your results and you haven't, you know. Interpreted them wrongly or made too much of your findings, then you should have the confidence to go ahead and persevere with that path. So that's the main thing that to learn from research is to make sure that you validated your results in your own hands many times, and then be confident of them when you take them to the public arena. Okay, I suppose that overlaps a little bit with my next question, which was about 
the harshest review you've ever received? What's the harshest review and how you managed to handle it? The harshest thing that was so, so destroying was this was one a one-line review saying this is poor science and meaningless data. That was, and I, I remember this was again during my PhD at the earlier years and I, I cried. <laughs> I rang my supervisor up and I said, how can this person say this? And the, as it turned out, this fellow was um, a very prominent bio, biomedical scientist in the States and he got into all sorts of trouble afterwards. Maybe <laughs> there's poetic justice in that, but yeah, he was the one who was really harsh. I mean, with no, you know, no way to come back. What do you re- respond to, you know? No, no proper questions were asked, just this dismissive statement. Um, which of course the editor, whether he knew him or not, I don't know, but basically the editor rejected the paper, so we sent it back to another journal. So even an Order of Australian Medalist and New South Wales Woman of the Year isn't safe from the harshest of peer reviews. You've been listening to Minotti Apta, and this is the Peer Review Podcast. The Peer Review Podcast is brought to you by POCD Scientific. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or wherever else you get your podcasts.